My title this morning is Making Sense of the Flood. It's part five of our series, and I've called it the series Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm wondering if that's a better series name than Understanding the Old Testament, because really that's what our goal is, to see Jesus in the Old Testament, and that is what we're going to try and do today. So the goal today is to make sense of the flood account in Genesis and see how it connects with Jesus and how it speaks to us today. So let's just do a quick recap of where we've been. We started uh, with part one, which is why study the Old Testament? And we saw you can't get the fruit without the root. You have the tree has to be rooted in the Old Testament and a really good grasp of the Old Testament to bring forth the full fruit of understanding the new and what Jesus has done for us. And then we looked at creation and we saw this sense of, of wonder and awe at God's power and beauty and how this, the, the creation account, not just in Genesis, but throughout the Bible, emphasized just this beauty of who God is. Then the third session, we looked at the big story and we saw how there's actually a story that's coherent from beginning to end. And the real question is, who are you going to serve? Who is, who is your master? And, uh, the, the, the problem was that, uh, of course, Adam chose the wrong thing and he, he chose to serve Satan rather than, than the Lord. And, this led to all kinds of problems, and as we go through the story, we see this choice being made all the way through between different people. And then, of course, it comes with Jesus on the cross, who gives us a new heart, which is able to choose to serve him, to make him Lord. And this is the big picture, the big story over everything. And then um, last week, we had the type shadows and types. Now, this is a picture of a typewriter because the idea is that the New Testament story, save Jesus on the cross, leaves an impression in the old, like type does. It leaves a shape in the old. And an example was the story of John, um, uh, the story that, that um, Jesus told of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, the bronze serpent. And that serpent nailed to the post was a picture of Jesus. And as they looked to that serpent for salvation, that's a picture of us looking to Jesus. And that is described as being a type of Jesus. And we saw that actually this turned to be out to be one of the keys for seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And we talked about how you can determine whether a type is valid or not and the dangers of like over-symbolizing things. So this week is making sense of the flood, and there are three things I want to do. First of all, talk about the story from the fall to the flood, and what I've called the strange climax of evil. Then I want to look at the flood event itself, and then to ask, where was Jesus? How are we going to connect this with the story of Jesus? So today's message is a tough one. It's tough because there are several questions that I don't have the answers. But um, I think, however, the core message is clear 
and we're going to give most of our attention to the core message and I'm going to acknowledge to you where I'm not sure of the answer but I'm not going to get distracted by that because I don't think it's actually the core of what this is about. So let's then look at the story from the fall to the flood. So uh, Cain kills his brother and that's the first murder. Cain and Abel, the first children that Adam and Eve have. And then Cain has descendants. And we read the account, those first few chapters of Genesis, we see the sin increases. One of Cain's descendants, called Lamech, takes two wives. This is the first time we've ever heard of this in history of somebody taking more than one wife. Not only does he do that, but he kills a man for bruising him. And then he writes a song about it in which he sings to his wife, his wives, boasting how he is more than 10 times as evil as Cain. So this is the state it's got to. Like he's actually writing a song about how evil he is. And this is an example of how, what the world is getting like. Uh, So that's the first part of the story I want to tell. But there's another aspect which I've called the strange climax of evil. And something strange begins to happen. And we read about this in chapter 6, the first eight verses, just immediately leading up to the flood. When humankind began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humankind were beautiful. Thus they took wives for themselves from any they chose. So the Lord said, My spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely, since they're mortal. They remain for a hundred and twenty more years. The Nephilim were on the face of the earth in those days. And also after this, when the sons of God were having sexual relations with the daughters of humankind who gave birth to their children, they were with, they were the mighty heroes of old, the famous men. So this is a strange few verses, and this has been interpreted differently throughout church history. But the translation I've given you in front of you, I think is is impeccable. And I don't think you can get a better translation than that. And you can't get away from what the text is saying, that there is some kind of sexual relationship between angelic beings and humanity. And um, which produces, which seems to be, introduces a corruption into humanity, which really increases the level of sin. And so I don't understand this, but this is what the text says, and not just here, but there's some references in the New Testament to this happening. And so this is this was wrong, God had forbidden this, but this was allowed. And uh, this was this intermarrying was allowed. And so it was seen then to be, according to the scripture, to be very, um, very, very evil. Um, when I say it was allowed, it was allowed apparently by the humans involved. They, this was, this was consensual, apparently. The passage goes on, but the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their minds 
was only evil all the time. Oh, I should go back. There's something I wanted to point out in um, verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely since they're mortal. They remain for 120 more years. People are puzzled over this. And really the conclusion is that God is saying God's spirit is is um, um, really uh, wrestling with humanity to try and bring them back. But he says, I'm going to give you 120 more years probation. This is 120 years before the flood. And God says, you know, I'm going to give you this time to get yourself sorted out. Um, Oh, I should have also said something about the Nephilim. The Nephilim, it seems, um, were connected with these these mixed relationships between um, fallen angels and humanity. We're not exactly sure where they fit in, but they were part of this, whether they were the, the angelic beings or whether they were results of... The, uh, the relationships, we're not sure. But um, this, is, this is what it's saying. So let's just go on. Um, I read verse 5. Verse 6, The Lord was grieved that he'd made humankind on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Now here's another verse that's been... Um, uh, throughout church history, people have had trouble sometimes translating this verse actually as it's, as, as what it says, because sometimes people have, have portrayed God as being above feelings. I mean, if you look back at ancient philosophers like Plato, they would say that our emotions are our animal part and our reason is the spiritual part. And so the idea that God could suffer emotions was seen as totally beneath God. And so they would find a different way of translating this. But actually, this is not true of emotions. They're actually part of the richest part of what it means to be human, is to have emotions. And we can't be superior to God that we have this experience of emotions and God doesn't even get to do that. Um, how can God be... Um, be missing out on something that we have because we are in his image and so i would say that god has at least uh, as rich experience of emotions as we have because ours are like derived from god now the problem comes with god having negative emotions because surely god could avoid any negative emotions if he wanted to and one assumes that's true and so uh, what's happening here why does god create something which then causes him grief. Why does he do that? Well, I think the answer is that if we define a God who we can easily understand in every way, then I don't think he would be God. I think the God that exists is one that must have some level of mystery to us. And all we can say is, this is what the text says. The text says God has these emotions We know he could have avoided it, but we are content to say God is a mystery in many ways. He's, he's, but his, his personhood is just as rich and far richer than mine is. It is possible for God to experience something uh, in a way that's kind of analogous to our experience. So, so anyway, all that goes to say is that God is grieved by Evil. When he sees evil, he sees injustice. It, it brings grief to him in some way. 
so the Lord said, I will wipe out humankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, everything from humankind to animals, including creatures that move on the ground and birds of the air, for I regret I have made them. Now, again, the statement regret, I believe, is is not that God is, um, you know, he's not changed his mind, but it's a statement of emotions rather than a statement that God has changed his mind. Um, so this leads to three hard questions. And I've got three hard biblical questions and I've got three hard historical questions for you. So let's do the three hard biblical questions first. Oh, the passage ends, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord, which is kind of the ray of hope. Three hard biblical questions. What was the problem that made the flood necessary? What was going on here? What was this stuff that was happening um, that was so evil that somehow God couldn't have, have overcome it in some way just by, you know, introducing um, some people that worshipped him and, and his worship spreading across the world? We don't really know what was it, what exactly it was, but there was something that had happened to the world that had got into a state that made the flood necessary. And this leads us to the second, oh, yeah, I could say this, what was it that went so wrong? And why did not God not prevent it from happening? Surely God could have stopped this happening? This is a hard question, and I'm just, I'm laying it out there. I'm saying I don't have the answer, and the answer is is known to God, and I'm sure he does have an answer, but maybe we wouldn't understand it if he were to explain it to us. But there was something that made the flood necessary. We just have to accept that. Um, the next, the second hard question is, how did the flood address this problem? Like, what was it that was necessary? So, so for example, did the animals need to die as well? What was going on um, that that uh, required the animals to die. Well, I'm going to suggest that um, uh, that when it, it wouldn't have been sufficient for God to say, I've introduced a plague which killed everybody except the eight that survived, um, and that way just killed humanity, but left the rest of the world intact. Because all of civilization would have still been there, or the, all the cities would have been there, and it seems the wickedness was systemic, and it was built into the civilization, and it was just, and it was, the whole thing was systemic. And so the only way to, to completely reset what was happening was actually to wipe it clean. So God didn't just um, get rid of humanity, apart from the eight who were saved, he got rid of their culture all their institutions, all their systems, the corruption that was there, the the the, the, the signs of evil, and it, he wiped it clean. He did a reset, and the animals, because the animals were there, you know, they were living, they were around the cities and so on. They were, um, if you like, um, collateral damage in that process. It was unavoidable that the animals would have to be wiped out at that point as well, and. Uh, then the third question is, did this actually solve it? Was it solved afterwards? And I'm just going to suggest to you that not entirely, um, but the way was now set 
for God to choose Abraham and Sarah, uh, which started the clock ticking for Jesus to be born. So I'm not quite sure why it was it was specifically necessary for God to do it this way, but it was. He made a clean start, and whatever was new was the way was clear for Jesus to come. So um, those are my hard biblical questions. I'm sorry I can't give you any better answers than that, but at least we're acknowledging what these problems are. Uh, so the next thing is making sense. Sorry, I'm. this is my summary now. Making sense of the flood. We've looked at the story from the fall to the flood and the strange climax of evil. Um, we're now going to look at the flood event. And then we're going to end by asking, where was Jesus? So, the flood event. And I want to start by saying that nearly every culture has a tradition of a flood. And this is quite extraordinary that um, floods, you know, Flood stories are so embedded in traditions across the world. And Anne knows more about this than me, and she's been doing some research on it. So I'm just going to ask Anne to, to, to step in now and just talk us through some of these, some of these uh, things that she's learned. There are flood stories in the, in the legends and myths of, and of um, many, many, many cultures all around the world. I mean, there are actually hundreds in one form or another. And um, I found a website here where someone had compared a couple of hundred of these stories to see what things they had in common. And um, he's put them, this is like Jeopardy, isn't it? He's put them in the form of a question. Um, that This is the, the, the things that these stories have in common that he compared. And you can see there, number one, in 88% of the stories of the over 200 stories this man, John Morris, looked at, 88% of them, there was a favoured family. In 66% of them, the people were forewarned and the flood is due to the wickedness of mankind. In um, 95% of these stories, the catastrophe was only a flood. It wasn't like there was a fire or a great dragon or something it was just a flood and in 95 percent of the stories it talks about it that the story is that it flooded the whole world so um in 70 percent of the stories people the people survived in a boat in 67 percent of them they also saved animals or in 73 percent animals played some part in the story in over half of them 57 percent the survivors landed on a mountain I don't understand what 82% of the geography being local was. Maybe it means like, I'll tell you a story in a minute where actually it names a specific mountain and that's local to the the people telling the story. Maybe that's what he means. In 35% of the stories, people sent birds out. In 7% of the stories, there was a rainbow mentioned. In 13%, the survivors of the, the flood offered a sacrifice. And in 9% of these stories, it was specifically eight people that were saved. And he then goes on to suggest what it would sound like if you put all these stories together. But um, I, I found one of, these, uh, one of these stories online, and uh, I'll tell it to you. And this is, 
uh, in Hawaiian mythology. And in Hawaiian mythology, they had a man, there was a man called Nu'u. I have no idea how you speak Hawaiian, but that's my best approximation to how it's written down. And Nu'u built uh, a great canoe with a house on top of it, and he filled it with animals. And in this story, the waters come up and cover the whole earth, and they kill all the people, and only Nu'u and his family survive. They're the only ones that are saved. And after the great flood, he landed his vessel on top of, not surprisingly, the highest mountain in Hawaii. But afterwards, he made the mistake of attributing his safety to the moon, and he offered sacrifices to the moon. However, at this point, the great creator God, whose name I can't pronounce, the great creator God descended to the earth on a rainbow and explained to Nuu what mistake he'd made. So this is one of these stories that got that's got a lot of familiar elements in it. And this is on the island of Hawaii. And there are stories from all over the world. There are Inuit flood stories. There are flood stories amongst the uh, Australian Aboriginals. There are flood stories in China. There are flood stories in parts of Africa, South America. You name it. All over the world, there are stories of people surviving a flood for whatever reasons and corresponding to the biblical story in some degree or another. So I'm going to hand back to Andrew. Well, thanks, Anne. You know, I think this is such powerful evidence that there was a flood because how could the stories of floods be so spread out in in humanity just so universal with such similarities if there wasn't something very 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 early on before the nations got split up that actually um happened so uh, whatever you say there was something that happened there, there was an event that happened and um and i think the, the biblical account is so much more um coherent than any of the other stories that are out there people have compared the the babylonian Gil- gilgamesh epic with the biblical account and they can see how much better the biblical account is in representing this um so evidence from 200 flood stories so um I now want to ask three hard historical questions. Um, The first is, does universal flood mean global flood? Does the universal flood mean the global flood? And there's, I can suggest some, some, uh, things for you to research about this if you're interesting, but there's a website called reasons.org, which stands for reasons to believe. And they have an article, does the Bible say Noah's flood was global or universal? And I think they make an excellent case that for the, that actually the flood need not have been global in terms of covering the entire earth, but universal in terms of humanity. And so it could have been restricted geographically. And I'm not going to go into all the, all the arguments from the Bible there, but I think that there's a reasonable case to make for that, given the way the words are used in the account and can be taken differently. So that's the first hard question. Was the flood global or was it just universal in terms of humanity? The second was date. 
how long ago did this happen? And what about the lists of numbers of years in people's lives um, in some of the early chapters of Genesis? Well, um, again, I'm not going to go into this, but I think um, that uh, we don't we we don't have to be tied down to some date that um, you know that, that has been exactly worked out from particular dates in the scripture, which gives us a very kind of late date for the flood. Um, I think it could be way, way older than that. Um, of course, predating the great civilizations that we find in archaeology. So um, I can't, don't think we can be precise about the date. There are different ways of understanding the numbers that we get in those biblical accounts. And the third one, if um, it's not global, uh, why animals? So if the flood was just in a, in a restricted area, we included all of the people, why could the animals not have just dispersed? And, you know, and in fact, why did God need to have any animals on the ark at all? Because, um, you know, they would all be surviving somewhere else. So I, uh, I, I'm only speculating on this, of course, but, um, I, I think that part of the answer to this is that the the animals that they took with them, I think, were probably those ones that they were connected with. So the domesticated animals, other animals that they they were they were involved with in some other way that were part of the part of, of the way that they lived. And so, I don't think it was necessary for them to take every single animal that existed on the world at that time, just the ones that would enable that part of the world to be restarted once they landed and wouldn't wait for maybe decades for animals to find their way into it from other parts that hadn't been flooded. So that's my best answer to that question. We're not told, so we're only speculating here. Um, so the next thing I want to do is to I've looked at those questions. I want to actually look at the flood story. And just very, very briefly, but um, one of the remarkable things about the flood account is how well structured and how beautifully it's written. And I'm going to give you just a summary here. Um, and this is uh, this summary is produced by um, uh, a man called uh, Anderson. And uh, he's done a lot of work in the structure, but others have done work on how the whole account fits together. So you start off with a, an introduction at the end of chapter, at the beginning of chapter six, and then we have violence in God's creation. And that's matched by a peace, a statement of peace at the end of the account in, in down in 10. So one and 10 kind of match. And then two has a divine address with God saying he's going to destroy, telling the earth. And then he commands them in section three here to enter the ark. And then matching that in eight, they're commanded to leave the ark. And then there's God resolves to preserve rather than to destroy in the future. So you can see there's a perfect symmetry between two and three and then eight and nine. And it carries on. There's a beginning of the flood, and then there's a rising waters, and then we have a statement I'll come to in a minute, and then receding the waters, and then the drying of the earth. So there's a, there's a beautiful symmetry about the way the whole story is constructed. And this is, I've given you a simplified version, there's actually even more detail that's just, just uh, composed in a way that's um, very precise. 
Um, but what's key to the way this is structured is the central statement of God remembered Noah and those with him in the ark. And when the word remembered is used in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean forgot, the opposite of forgetting. It means to to pay attention to and to come and to engage with. And to and so when it says God remembered Noah, it meant that God was there for Noah at that time. In the middle of everything that happened here, God was there and God brought Noah out of that and saved him. So that's like the turning point, um, which is going to be significant for us later. So let's go to our outline again, making sense of the flood. We've looked at the story of the fall to the flood and the strange climax of evil. And then briefly, I've given you the account of the flood. I haven't spent a lot of detail on that because um, probably most of you know the story of the flood and it's um, uh, that's not where I want to give my focus to. I want to give my focus more on the meaning and this is what we're going to come to. Where was Jesus in this story? Where was he? So I'm going to answer this in two ways. First of all, this was actually about the battle between Satan and the promised descendants of Eve. This is really what it was about. Satan had launched a massive attack on God's promise for humanity. If you remember, God had made a promise to Eve that one of her descendants would be the one that would destroy the power of evil. And she promised this to Eve. And the as time went on, we see this battle between the forces of evil and the descendants of Eve which came down, of course, to Jesus. And last last week, we looked at this golden thread that went the way all the way through. Well, this was a major attack. And this massive attack was to try to corrupt the earth so much that God couldn't bring forth his plan. And so uh, God did something completely unexpected to undo this damage that Satan did. God effectively pressed the reset button. He cleared the path for the line of Jesus. And we, we will see that very shortly after the flood, we read the account of Abraham being called and given the promise uh, that eventually all the earth will be blessed through one of his descendants. And so the, the, the golden thread is picked up again. So I would say then, with the question, where was Jesus? The first answer is actually the whole purpose was the fl- for the flood was to resist this attack of Satan on the line of the golden thread. And of course, Noah was one of the people that went through, the golden thread went through, because he was the one that survived. Um, so that's the first answer. This, the other answer I have, and this is the one I want to major on and conclude with, is the ark was a type of Jesus. Remember what we learned that the word type means? It means a picture. It means it carried the impression of Jesus. And we learn about Jesus and we connect to Jesus through the ark. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I want to suggest the flood was a picture of the final judgment. And 
Jesus is the ark that takes us through the storm. Just as the, 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 the storm beat upon the ark and those inside were safe, so Jesus takes the storm for us and we are safe in him. Noah uh, preached for 40 years, uh, we read, and the gospel he must have been preaching was, there is a flood coming, but you can be safe in the ark. This is what Noah was preaching. And of course, nobody listened to this, but apart from, you know, his, his own children. Um, but this was the sermon that he was preaching. And I would say that you have absolutely nothing to fear if you are in Jesus. This is the gospel that there is a flood coming. There is a storm coming. The world will be destroyed by fire this time, not by water. But you can be safe in God's provision, which now is Jesus. So the the ark is just a, a beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus protecting us from the storm. Well, you might say, um, last week, Andrew, you told us we shouldn't just invent types. We have to see that there's some evidence for that being a type in the New Testament. Where do you find this in the New Testament? Well, I can find a couple of places in the New Testament, actually a number, but I'm going to show you, show you two places where I think there's a connection very explicitly shown between the ark and Jesus' salvation. And the first of these is in Matthew 24. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. So, okay, so that's destruction. That's the end of the world. But my words will never pass away. But as for that day and hour, in other words, the day and hour when heaven and earth will pass away, no one knows it, not even the angels in heaven except the Father alone. But just like the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and took them away. It will be, it will be the same at the coming of the Son of Man. So, uh, this, do, this doesn't make Jesus equal to the ark, but it does the other half of the story. It very, very clearly makes the flood in Noah's time a picture of heaven and earth passing away, the ultimate end of the world. Um, so the the last reference that I want to show you is from 1 Peter chapter 3. And here Peter's talking about baptism. Now you know that the baptism is a picture of being joined with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. When Paul speaks about baptism, he says when you go down into the water, that's like a picture of, of dying. You're going into the grave with Jesus. And when you come out of the water, it's a picture of coming up in new life. And so you're identifying yourself with Jesus' death and resurrection as you're going through baptism. And so Peter's playing off this, the death and resurrection and baptism. And what he's doing, he's actually saying the flood is like the baptismal waters because, you know, it's like going in is a picture of death and then coming out in Jesus is a picture of resurrection. 
Long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, and God is waiting, remember, 120 years, and when the last 40 of them, Noah is preaching, um, the ark is being built. Um, God's waiting for people to turn. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. What is the answer of our good conscience? Well, that Jesus has actually washed away my sin. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying that these eight people being saved through water and then coming out at the other end, to a new world, to new life in a new world, is a picture of us being saved in Jesus and coming out into new life. So what I'd like to, I'd like to end now by getting us to focus on this amazing picture of the ark being where we can be to be protected from storms. Um, I have a memory from childhood uh, of being in a in a car and just I would love it if in a car when there was a storm because I was safe in my warm car seat and you know my parents were driving I didn't know that it was hard for them to drive in this but they were driving and I was in this and I could see the rain lashing and the wind blowing and I just felt so safe and cozy inside and what a nice feeling that was and I imagine them in the ark and you know the the rain is lashing and there's a storm and they feel God has put us here. This is God's plan. We are safe. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Nothing can happen to us. Well, I don't know if they did feel that or not, but this is how I want you to feel today. That that no matter what storms happen to you, you are safe in that storm. And so this is my last slide. Safe in the storm. This is where I want to land the connection between Jesus and the flood. You could be 100% safe in the wildest storm if you are trusting in Jesus. Um, How can harm possibly come to you if you're in him, if you're safe in him? Um, He will land you safe at the other side, just like the disciples in the boat in the storm. Remember when Jesus actually kind of almost reenacted the ark story when the, with the storm and he was in the boat and you know they were taken safely to the other side because Jesus was there. And I just want to leave this image with you of the ark of being such a sure protection, no matter how bad the storm is. And there are storms in this life, and Jesus is your ark now. And there will be a massive storm at the end. There will be the storm of death, and Jesus will take you through. You have nothing to fear, because you can be safe in him. So I'd like to close in prayer. And just uh, pray that all of us will really engage with the wonder of this, this, the safety that Jesus provides and the salvation he provides. God, we thank you that you've provided Jesus to be our safe place, to be our protection, that because he has suffered, 
we do not have to suffer. Lord, I pray that everyone here might know that protection. And Lord, those of us here who are anxious, who've got things that we're afraid of in this life, Lord, that you will give us the faith to trust in Jesus' power to take us through whatever there is and to bring us safely through. Lord, please give us that security in Jesus. Amen.